Would you like to live a healthier, happier, and more fulfilled life? Cultures from all over our planet have been addressing that concern for thousands of years, and their answers can help you in your life today. Join anthropologist and healer Robert Vetter as he introduces you to cultures of health and healing. Get ready now to try out some healing beliefs and practices from far and wide. Here's the host of your show, Robert Vetter. Greetings, everybody. Welcome to the third episode of Cultures of Health and Healing, where I think we really start to get down to brass tacks. This episode is going to take a look at the healing story of Oliver Padaponi. And there are two ways that I want to use the word healing story. Number one, it's going to tell a story or an account of an actual healing that took place. But there's a second way that I want to use the term healing story. And that is to say that the story itself has the ability to heal others. So simply by listening to the story, it affects a, a strong healing force in the person listening. Oliver Padaponi, according to his own accounts, was the last medicine man of the Comanche tribe. And I met him way back in 1980. So I was a graduate student in cultural anthropology at the University of Oklahoma. And as I said earlier, I, I had intended to do field work originally in Asia, but decided that I would do some field work in Oklahoma since it was the home of more tribes of Native Americans than any other tribe. And kind of a long story about how I met Oliver Padaponi, but the, the short version of it is that I had a, a roommate who was part Comanche, and through him I eventually met a man named Woody Watchetaker, who was a very famous artist among the Comanche people, and had a pretty good knowledge of medicine as well. His wife, uh, Eva, was the niece of a famous Comanche medicine woman by the name of Sanapia. And if you're interested enough to know more about that, there was a book written about Sanapia called Sanapia Comanche Medicine Woman. But eventually, because of meeting Woody Watchetaker, I came to meet Oliver Padaponi. Now, I'm going to go back to the story about uh, when I met Oliver Padaponi. I went to his home one night. And I met him uh, in the dark by myself, and he was kind enough to tell me that he would meet with me the following week. So I went back to the university, and I told my advisor, Bill Biddle, who was a pretty famous anthropologist. He did his field work among the Apache people in Oklahoma many, many years prior. And I told him about having met Oliver Padaponi. He knew that my area of interest within cultural anthropology was healing practices, and I had told him that I wanted to meet a medicine man. And he, his instructions to me had simply been to go out and use a networking approach, and hopefully eventually I would get to meet a medicine man. So I came back, I told him that I had met this medicine man, and kind of wanted some guidance on what to do and what not to do, because really I knew nothing at the time about the Native people of Oklahoma or Native Americans anywhere. So he told me that um, medicine was a very sensitive subject and one that would require a lot of finesse, that I'd have to really establish rapport with this old man over the course of time, and eventually I might be able to talk about things like medicine. Now, 
to be honest, I was a little discouraged by that because I wanted to get my field work underway and I was really hoping to just jump right into the subject. So I asked him, well, if I can't talk about medicine with him, then what should I talk about? And he said, well, maybe you should start by talking about traditional stories, the, the mythology or, or the traditional stories of his people. So I went back to Oliver Pataponi's house and I had a list of questions that I was going to ask him written on a, on a legal pad of paper. And I was ready to talk about things like their traditional stories. And I, I asked him if he had any of those stories that he could tell me. And he thought about it for a moment. And he said, well, he said, uh, you know, my, my wife's sister talks to somebody at the university about things like that. But to be honest with you, he said, to me, those are just a bunch of fairy stories. But if you want to know about something true, something real, then I'll tell you the story about my own medicine. He said, I know that what I'm about to tell you is true because I went through it myself. So he went through the story, which I'll share with you, and he said that, um, that he had been diagnosed with cancer. And he went into the hospital and he went through all of the tests and all of the treatments that were available at that time. And he said, uh, finally, the doctors, the main doctor came in and he said, you know, the, all the doctors had a meeting about your case and we've decided that there's really nothing left that we can do for you. He said, we can ease your pain if you want to stay here for a while, but really there's nothing left for us to do. He said, no. He said, um, maybe I'll just take care of this the way that our old folks used to. And he, his wife and his son came in and he talked to them and he said to his son, take me out there to the hills to fast and leave me there. Now, what he was about to describe is something that is classically referred to as a vision quest. You'll hear anthropologists uh, and other people use that term. Although I have to be honest that that's not a term that he ever used. He just said, take me out there to the hills and leave me there. So the vision quest, as, as it is sometimes called, is something that goes way back in history. And it's a, a lone vigil where a boy about to become a man, in some cases a girl about to become a woman, would often go on a vision quest back in the old days and uh, sometimes a number of times over the course of a lifetime. But it had mostly died out by the time that Oliver Pataponi described his going out there to the hills. Most people didn't do it anymore. When I asked him why, he said that it's because most people don't want to suffer the way that I had to. But he said, I, I felt that I had no choice. So he had his son take him to a place in the Wichita Mountains in southwest Oklahoma, facing a mountain called Mount Scott, which is one of the, the largest peaks in this old, old mountain range. Now they're very short compared to what they used to be. At one time they were like the Rocky Mountains, but they're ancient mountains, and they're largely piles of rocks and boulders. So he said, uh, he said take me out there and leave me there. And when he got there... The things that he had with him were a sheet to cover himself up with, an eagle feather to hold on to for strength, four 
corn husks or um you know the 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 outer wrapping on the corn when they're dried they make a um a corn husk that can be rolled and tobacco to roll four prayer smokes he said he got there to that place and he said nothing happened the first day at all he said that uh that he just sat and he prayed throughout the day but that night something did happen and he said through the night he was afraid and he was praying and he smoked his his uh prayer smokes and by the way the purpose of tobacco among native people is not the way that we might think of tobacco tobacco is something sacred and something holy and something that we use as human beings to communicate with the creator so he smoked his prayer smokes and he said towards morning he could hear a rustling of leaves over toward mount scott and when he looked up he saw what appeared to be a flickering fire and it it went on and then it went off and then it went on and it went off and as it got closer to him he could see that there was a movement of this flame and then it was it turned out that it was coming out of the mouth of this entity that he referred to as the visitor and as it got closer to him he could make out the outline of a human form and when it got right in front of him he said the way he described it was he said i was so scared that i was like a fish when you pull it out on dry land the fish just flops around helpless and he said i was that way he said when the, the visitor got right up in front of me he started to speak and he spoke to me in my comanche language and he said i i was paralyzed i couldn't move I couldn't talk, I couldn't do anything. But this visitor spoke to me and he he asked me, "What are you doing here?" And I said, "I'm sick." And the visitor said, "There's nothing wrong with you at all." Now, when the visitor approached him, the visitor shot that fire that I was describing a moment ago, shot it out of its mouth. And he said, "When the when the fire hit me, that was when i could move again i could speak visitor asked me why are you here and he said i'm sick and the visitor said well there's nothing the matter with you he said you're going to be all right but they sent me to take care of a man who's real bad off and he said he he said all of this in the comanche language then the visitor started to turn away to leave but he turned back one more time and he said son he said, did you know that this whole world that we live in stops for a very little while just before morning? And that's the time when things like me can enter into this world. And with that, the visitor took off. He left to the west, which is sometimes considered the direction of death. And Oliver Pataponi said that he never saw that visitor again but something changed he was healed of that cancer he never had the cancer again in fact he never returned back to the doctors to even tell them what had happened but after that something completely changed for him and for his life 
He said he was walking down the street in his town. He lived in a little town called Apache, Oklahoma. And he was walking in the he was walking down the main street one day, and an old Comanche woman walked up to him and he said she was a, a medicine woman. And she looked at him and she said, Hey, what happened to you? And he said, Nothing. And she said, No. She said, I can tell from looking at you that something changed. What what happened to you? And he described the incident that I told you. And she said, Well, you know, you may not realize it right now, but you're good for something. And sometime soon, you're going to find out what that is. Well, he started to think about the ways that he saw people being healed when he was a boy. Now, he was born probably around 1900 or maybe the late 1800s. He didn't know because they didn't even keep track of birth dates back then. But he remembered back to watching the doctoring methods of the medicine men that he knew when he was a boy. And he saw the way that they would doctor somebody who was sick, the ways that used power, this amazing ability to use a certain kind of power that we find around us in nature, a power that we all possess, but some people have more of it than others. Some places have more of it than others. Some objects have more of it than others. Some plants and some animals. But he remembered that these old medicine men had their ways of using this power. And what came to him was a method of doctoring that would use the same thing that healed him of his cancer, namely fire. And he was what we could call a coal doctor because his doctoring method was to build a fire, let the fire burn down to glowing red-hot coals, and then reach into the fire with his fingers and pull out one of those red-hot coals and put it into his mouth. And the way that he described it to me was, he said, the, you've got to fight fire with fire. And that's why he said, when I reach into that fire, it's got to be a red coal not a black or a gray one, he said, because the red ones are the ones that have power. So he put the coal into his mouth, and what that would do is it would activate this power within him. And then he was able to work on a patient. And he described it to me as being like working with wet cement. He said, if, you, if you've ever worked with cement, you know you, that you mix it up and you put it the way that you want it. You shape it to whatever form you want. And then you leave it. And then it, when it dries, it stays that way. And he said, that's the way my doctoring is. He said that I would, I touch the person. And I move them back to the way that they're supposed to be. So that they then stay that way. And that was, that was his method of doctoring and you know he explained also that different medicine men had their different ways their various different ways of doctoring different kinds of sickness and he came to this way of being healed and healing relatively late in his life but he doctored many people from his tribe the Comanche tribe from neighboring tribes and people sometimes came from far distances to be doctored by him because he gained some reputation. 
So the takeaways from this story that I think are very important is, number one, is that what heals you is your medicine to use to help out other people. So whatever it is that's holding you back right now, we can use this, this story that I just shared with you as an analogy for each one of us in our lives. And we all have something to heal. It might be something from the mind, from the body, from the spirit, from the emotions. But whatever it is that is our challenge in life, when we heal it in ourselves, that healing actually becomes the seed of what we will be able to use in order to help others. And that's the, the number one takeaway from this story. Another takeaway from the story is that the earth itself has the power to heal us. And that's why I encourage people to go out and spend time in nature, but not just to walk in nature, not just to be in nature, but to actually communicate with our mother earth, knowing that she's the source of such incredible healing strength. And that's why, for example, I go out every morning, and I hope maybe some of you will also, with my tobacco offering, with a pinch of tobacco that I lay down on the ground, and I talk to Mother Earth, and I thank her. But at times, I also ask her to help me or to help someone else, because this Earth itself has a consciousness. This Earth is a living, breathing being, and she is our mother. And so we can turn to her in our times of need. The third thing that I want to talk about is the power of social relations in healing. And after I had gotten to know Oliver Pataponi for a couple of years, he eventually adopted me into his family. He took me as his grandson. And I've been lucky enough in my life to be among people from a number of different tribes in Oklahoma. And I've been adopted into a number of different families. And I can tell you that perhaps the best way to look at this is to say that spirituality is embedded in social relations. That is to say that the way that this type of spirituality that I'm describing today is practiced is within families and within extended relations. And myself, I, I came from a very, very small family. So um, I was raised by my grandmother. Uh, my mother lived nearby. My father lived some distance away. Uh, I'm an only child, so I came from a very, very small family. So when he took me into his family, it really began a healing process for me personally that would extend over many, many years. And I found spirituality embedded within these and other social relations. So I hope you've enjoyed this healing story. I hope that it has some ability to heal you in some small way. Join us as we continue down this healing road and seeking health and healing in the ways of others. This has been Cultures of Health and Healing with Robert Vetter. 
Thanks for listening. Please remember to subscribe and rate this show and share it with others. Until next time, remember, your health and healing matter, and you can find your own unique path to optimum wellness.